Well, I was going to make a bet already that um, if I didn't cry, I was going to pay some people. I was going to give teenagers some candy bars or something like that. But I think I've already made good on that bet. I'm crying already, so I'm going to not do that. Um, I probably should have included in the prayer um, Pastor Aaron, who we've swapped today. So a lot of you have said, who's with my kids? And I'm like, Pastor Aaron. And they're like, no way. Really? So I'm going to drag this on for a little bit. We're just going to like make sure he experiences the fullness of children's ministries. I want all the potty breaks. I want all the water spills. I want all the tears from moms and dads. I want all the hard questions that you really can't answer. I want it all. So we're just going to kind of take some intermissions. We're going to have popcorn. Um, we'll take potty breaks. We'll do all the things just to like extend this. Um, no, really, I, I, um, I have a plan and I hope, I hope things go well with him. He, was, he offered. This might be the last opportunity for this, so let's hope it goes well because I think this, uh, that's a, I don't know who got the short end here. I think, I think I might win here. But I wondered how many of you have ever kept a journal, right? Like, okay, lots of people have kept a journal. I was wondering if maybe young people know what that is because a journal would be like paper and like a pencil or some sort of writing utensil um, that you would like write in. And so I'm wondering, I had many journals when I was little, but this one might be what it's like. I used to have a little uh, lock that dangled from this one so that for sure my sisters and my parents couldn't get in after my deepest, darkest secrets and my crushes and all of my thoughts and feelings, um, which if you didn't know, you can just take a paper clip and it opens. These things are super chintzy. I've read many of my sister's diaries, and so I knew everything that was going on in their lives, and then you just kind of snip it back together and put it back where you found it. Bedside table, always, always next to their bed. So this was a journal I've had for like 30 years. Um, I called it a diary because, you know, it kept my deepest, deepest darkest secrets. And so I know it's weird to think that in the dinosaur age when I was like a kid, we wrote our thoughts down because now maybe young people or even adults, we keep our journals a lot of times on a device. We write things down or we even just talk into our phone and it will like keep a, a transcription of what we've said. But journals are really just meant for a space where we can just get out our thoughts and feelings. And a lot of times it's just for us. It's kind of therapeutic. In fact, a lot of counselors suggest this as a way to just process feelings, just get them out. Usually that's good. Um, I know now, um, we, sometimes people are using like their social media accounts as their journals, which in that case, like we can see it. So if you didn't want to share it with us, we are like, you know, up to date on your every minute and your feelings and all of the events of your life. And that's okay if you want to share, but just, just letting people know that we're, we're seeing it like a lot. <laughs> um, and that's fine. But these are a couple of my journals from my childhood and teenage years. And this little one is kind of special because um, I decided I would buy this for Dan and I was going to write him a note every day, you know, of professing my undying love for him. 20 years ago, I started this journal. And that's kind of how it started. It's, it's like, thanks for always being there for me. And, oh, you make my life so sweet. I love you forever. And there's really all these kind of nice positive notes with these little doodles and hearts and all kinds of cute sentiments surrounding the words. And then there's the notes that don't say those kind of things. 
that aren't so positive. Um, but what I thought was interesting as I was rereading some of these entries was the introduction. The very first page says this. When I decided to start this little journal for you, I was trying to figure out what to put in it, what to write, how to write it. I guess I finally decided to just make it a collection of thoughts, anything I think about or things we share together, special days, whatever. So here it all is. No matter what the following pages say, always remember the meaning of this book. I love you. So when I ran across this little notebook, it reminded me a little bit of the book of Psalms. Now, a lot of you, you've been reading the Bible for like a million and two years. Well, you're not that old, but some of you, just <laughs> getting there. Um, so you're really familiar with the Psalm. That's like a cherished book, right? I remember going to the memorial service for Pat Fry and her Bible laid open to the Psalms. And it was all marked up, little notes and hearts and stars, underlines. She treasured some of these words. And some of you might be like that. Some of you might even have some of the Psalms memorized. And maybe if you don't have them perfectly memorized, you'd at least be able to think, oh yeah, that's from the Psalm. I don't know exactly which one, but it's there. Um, and others would, would say, uh, I'm not really sure about the Psalms. I don't have a lot of experience with the Bible yet. Um, I'm not even sure where to find psalms in the Bible. Or maybe you read the Bible and the psalms are a little bit confusing to you. You see that they're all over the place. So you might even skip over them. So regardless of where you find yourself this morning, I want to try something. I have a little game for us. I'm going to give you a group of words. And you're going to tell me if you think there's something from the psalm or not. All right? So you can indicate that however you want to. You can like hoot and holler. You can just nod, you can give me thumbs up, you can do whatever you want to do to indicate, yes, you think it's the Psalms, or no, you don't think it's from the Psalms, okay? All right, here we go. Number one, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Yay, people are like, okay, all right, let's see. All right, I hear you. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Yeah, and pastor made me keep that one in there. I, I sent him this. He's like, keep, keep that one in there because that's my favorite. I tell, I tell it to people all the time. Okay, who's talking? Me or you? All right. Here's another. Tell me yes or no. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. We're just saying that. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. All right, we do all right? Yeah? Those seem pretty easy, right? I mean, if nothing else fails, you give the good old Sunday school answer, like when your kid comes home and you're like, what did you learn about? And they're like, Jesus. You're like, okay, good. I mean, that, you can't go wrong. So young people, if you're here and your parents are like, what did you learn about? Just throw in the old Jesus. I mean, it's pretty much a safe bet, right? So those are pretty safe. Psalms, yes. Either way, it was a good, safe, um, a safe answer. 
Let's play another round, though, and I'll try to trick you a little bit, so be careful, be thinking about this one. Could they be Psalms or could they be something else? Here we go. Harass these hecklers, God. Punch these bullies in the nose. Grab a weapon, anything at hand. Stand up for me. Get ready to throw the spear. Aim the javelin at the people who are out to get me. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of these lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Good stuff, right? What'd you decide? Psalms? Sure. <laughs> Both rounds in this little game were words or phrases, verses found in the Psalms. But here's what I wonder. How in the world can that be? Because if you're like me, you go to the Psalm when you need encouragement, not to read any of that other stuff. So what are the Psalms? <laughs> the Psalms are really a collection of some of the oldest poems and songs and prayers in the world. I learned a trick when I was little, I think from Denise DeYoung, that when you open your Bible to the center, or most likely in the, in the middle, you will come to the psalm, because it's a big book, and it's right in the middle. And from there, you can either go forward or backward, depending on what you're trying to find. So it's a little trick of navigating your Bible. But the psalm was at the center. And one theologian even wrote, what the heart is in people, the Psalms are in the Bible. Now, I might not go as far to say that the Psalms are the heart, like the most vital part of the Bible, but I would say that they do give us a very whole picture of people as they are in relationship with God. They're the songs and the prayers of people very intimately connected to God, and these words depict all the, motion, the emotions that come with being in an authentic relationship. So if you think about it, something really amazing about the Psalms that I learned, that I, I think I just registered, is that this would have been the prayer book of Jesus. This is what he would have grown up with. He would have had Psalms memorized. He was shaped by the Psalms. In fact, Jesus quotes the Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament in his words in the New Testament. And that's just amazing for me to think of. This was vital to Jesus and his ministry and his vocation. But for me, <laughs> reading the Psalms a lot like living with a toddler or a teenager. Think about that. I, I live with both of these. Almost a toddler and almost a teenager. And I mean, the emotions are all over the place. It's a lot. I have a one-year-old and a 12-year-old. And like somewhere in the midst, it's like a lot of feelings, right? Like I told somebody the other day, I love consistency. People who are consistency, consistent, I just appreciate because it's easier for me to handle. Like that goes both ways. If you're consistently nice and upbeat and happy, cool. 
If you are consistently frustrated and grumpy and mean, cool, I don't care. At least I know what I'm coming up to, right? Like, at least I know how to prepare myself. Like, I can, I'm not ready for you today, or hey, I need that today. Consistency is attractive to me, and life with toddlers and teenagers doesn't really give it to me, right? But that's real life. And that's really what the Psalms are, (laughs) is real life. Each Psalm shows this full range of emotions that any human goes through through the course of their lifetime. Joy, sorrow, grief, desperation, anger, vengeance, praise, thankfulness, peace. And I guess that's really what I do love about the Psalms is that they're real. I think even more than consistency, I just love realness. I love authenticity. They aren't fake or superficial. They're brutally honest. If we look at them in their entirety, in the wholeness, they're full of emotions. They take us on this roller coaster that sometimes we don't want to be on. When things are good, we can see that things are good. And when things are bad, they don't hold back. The psalmists do not hold back in sharing their misery with us and their anger and their confusion and their grief and their fear and their frustration. And because of this, we can all relate. We've all felt these things. But the Psalms show a pattern of God's people. If you look at them, they're striving to obey him. Man, these people in the Psalms that are crying out to God are faithful, really. They want to eradicate sin at all costs, really. So when they're crying out to God, it's mostly because they want so desperately for him to make good on their promise to redeem and restore the world. They don't know what it's going to look like because they don't know about Jesus yet. But they want him to make good on his promise. And they knew that that meant Sin needed to be wiped away. But in the midst of all of this time, things happen. Some of it is immense gratitude for delivering them from painful situations when things seemed hopeless, but some of it wasn't. Sin happened, frustration happened, grief happened, loss happened, the sense of abandonment, confusion and anger. Life happened all around them and within them, and they had a choice. They could choose to run to God, to take the messy and confusing stuff to God, or they could keep it. They could deal with it themselves. I'm in that boat a lot of times. Or they could just ignore it completely, let it start to consume them. And the Psalms really are that. They're their true feelings, handed over to God in the rawest way, They're the journal of their heart that we get a glimpse into. So when we look at some of the Psalms, we see this pattern. Not in all the Psalms, but mostly something that happens in the Psalms is stuff happens. There's some big feelings. If you're young, maybe I could say like they're all up in their feelings. Is that a thing still? I'm trying so hard. My kids would be like so embarrassed of me, right? They're in their feelings. They have some stuff happens, and it evokes this big emotion, and then we see the Psalms letting it all out. They cry it to God, they sing it, they write it, they pray it, they take it to God. Then we see, by the end of the Psalm, typically there comes to this point of surrender and trust. So something happens, or something doesn't happen quite often that they're begging for God to do. There's an emotion that comes with it, there's this big feelings, They run to God, and then there's this surrender, this trust, 
this sacrifice, which leads to change. Let's take a look at Psalm 13, for example, of this pattern. This is the Psalm of David again. It says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Do you see how David starts out? Where are you, God? (laughs) Why don't you show up for me? Why are you letting me suffer? Why am I alone? He doesn't care. He lays it all out there. He runs to God with his big emotions, not just the positive ones, but all of them. And by the end of this prayer, this song, he comes to this. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises, for he has been good to me. So in the middle of life's most difficult situations and moments, David comes back to what he knows is true. He comes back to God, and he comes back to trust. He trusts the facts instead of his feelings. He turns to God in the fact that God is who he says he is. And I'm sure David has some history with God. He can take the long view and he knows God's character because he's proven it to him over and over again. Even if it doesn't feel like it right at this moment, David says, I trust in you. I know you love me without conditions. I know you saved me. And I'm going to lean into that because I know you're good. And because of that, I praise you. Some of you might be familiar with King David. Um, he was that unlikely king that God selected out of all of Jesse's sons who seemed way more qualified and seemed to be uh, fit that bill way more. What people expected out of a king to look like and to act like. And I, I tried this. We've been studying David for the last month with the kids. And last week we were talking about David. And I tried this comparison with the kids last week. And I was quickly shot down by one of your children who's like, the Disney movie and princess, like, expert. Because I tried to make this comparison so that kids could understand maybe kind of who David was. And I quickly was like, no, that's nothing like David. Okay, I'll try it with you guys, maybe. I feel like David is kind of like Cinderella. That didn't go over well. Ask an eight-year-old. I mean, it's not, it's not the boy and girl. It's just, whatever. it, It fell short. But anyway, I feel like David is kind of like Cinderella in the Bible because the invitation comes to the ball to go to the ball, and Cinderella's like not even considered to be invited. Nope, you've got too much work to do. You don't have a dress. You have nothing to wear. You don't look the part. You don't act the part. You don't get to go. And then when they come back for all the single ladies to, you know, shove their foot in the slipper, and the stepsisters can get their big fat feet in the slipper, and Cinderella's like, you know, they're like anybody else in the house, and stepmom's like, nope, that's all the women. And Cinderella's like, well, what about me, you know? And all the middle children are probably like, oh, that's how it feels to be a middle child. And you're just like the lost one, the forgotten one. But that's how maybe it kind of felt for David 
because that's how it happened, really. David's this lowly shepherd boy. His, brother, his brothers are stronger and, and older, maybe smarter. But David was the one that God wanted. And even Jesse was like, oh, wait, I guess I do have one more son. He's just out tending the sheep. My bad, I forgot about him. <laughs> Middle child, I don't know. You know, he's the youngest. But either way, you know, I think David <laughs> was described as the man after God's own heart because David was the one that God wanted to be king. So quite literally, he was the man after God's own heart. He was the one God wanted to be king. He was appointed by God to be king. Unlike Saul, who came before him, the people elected him. People wanted him to be the king. That didn't go so well. But God saw something in David, and David started out pretty good, right? If you know anything about David, he started out pretty well. Um, but then his authority, his control, his position, I think he... I think he got a little cocky, took it to his head, took advantage of his authority when he saw something he wanted in the form of a woman, Bathsheba, and he says he fell in love with her. Good for you, but the problem is she's taken. You can't have her. But David said, yeah, I can. So he sent for her. She came back. Now imagine teaching this to children. Really, that's fun. That didn't stop David, right? He sent, had a messenger go get her. She came back. Ends up, he impregnates her. Now, that's a big problem, right? Something that wouldn't go over well with the people. Definitely not if they knew about this or with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So in an attempt to cover it up, David arranged for Bathsheba's husband to go out to war. He was a big war man. He was strong. He was head of their military. So David's like, I'll set it up. He's going to go off to battle, and I will arrange it so he cannot survive. And he didn't. He was killed in battle. Then David was able to take Bathsheba as his own wife, and for about a year, nobody led on to it. That's until Nathan, who was a prophet, confronted David. So a year this went on, nobody really addressed the issue. And then Nathan came and said, hey, I know what happened. I know what happened. And this is where we see Psalm 51, which is basically the aftermath of this confrontation. So this is David, after he was confronted by Nathan, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are my, our God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing your, of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I actually was going to title this sermon, No Bull. And then I was like, I don't, I don't know. Katie had the cover designed and everything. Um, and she was excited to do that, by the way. She really was digging it. And then I had to like, I reworked it. And so I really wanted to talk about how God doesn't want a sacrifice of an animal. In fact, that went wrong in the Old Testament, right? These people would come year after year giving their animals, sacrificing their animals and walk away hopeless and empty still. It wasn't enough. So I really wanted to go there because this is full of good stuff. But he says, without the right heart, you don't want my animal. I can see right through it. I need your heart. I don't need your animal. So that's extra. No bull. It's a different sermon, but it's good. But what we do see here in the Psalm of David is significant for the Psalms. Because in most of the other Psalms, the ones that are like the crying out in anguish to God, this is what we see. They're crying out in desper desperation for God to do something in their situation or circumstance to other people around them. Right? They want God to fix what's going on around them. They want God to take away sickness or bring destruction to their enemies people that are in their way. They want to eliminate the sin of other people at all costs. But in Psalm 51, we see that David isn't crying out to God to do something about his situation or to change the people around him. He's crying out to God to transform what's going on inside of him. This is about inner transformation, not a transformation of our circumstances. This is about permanent transformation. So I grew up in a house with a couple of sisters. Naturally, there's lots of disagreements and arguments and fights. That also meant a lot of apologies. Um, many of these apologies I like to call obligatory apologies or spiteful sorries. You know, the kind that like your mom and dad forced you to say so that you can get the thing that you need, you know? Like, I can get ungrounded if I do the thing, or I can get my phone back if I can do the thing, or I can go with my friends if I do the thing, right? So you have to say sorry. Are you familiar with these, or am I the only one? Okay. Um, so they're the sorry, like, sorry. 
you know? Or it's like, sorry, like, what did you even just say? Or like, I texted her, sorry, am I good now? I didn't have texting back in the Stone Age. But either way, now maybe it's like, I'll just send her a message and we'll be good. In my house, they were the sorry buts, right? It went like this, sorry, but you're so annoying. Or sorry, but you started it in the first place. I'm trying not to make eye contact with my sister. (laughs) Or sorry, but I'll probably do it again. How many of us still apologize like that? We might not actually say the word, but our heart's definitely not sincerely forgiving or sincerely repenting or sincerely sorry. We just want to get the thing. We want our circumstances to be changed. We want to be ungrounded. We want to be free. But we don't want to really do the hard work that it takes to say, I'm sorry and mean it. But any authentic relationship we're ever going to be in will require us to be vulnerable and to take ownership of our wrongs. And David knows this God who can make his heart right. He's pleading for a new heart. He's pleading to be remade. He's pleading for holiness. Or maybe we would say he's pleading to be like Christ, which David wouldn't know because he didn't know Jesus. But we do, and we can. And we know what the heart of God looks like because we see it through the person of Jesus. So the character of God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We may have it confused. We might think they're totally different, but that's just not true. Because God was the same yesterday, today, and he will be tomorrow. He's unchanging. But authentic relationships of any kind require a sacrifice of the heart. And when we want an authentic relationship with God, it requires us to empty ourselves completely to be filled with the heart of God. Now, God takes us where we are. Don't hear me say that any differently because we see in the Psalms, God takes it all and he takes us where we are. But the good news is he doesn't leave us there. I hear people say that a lot. God loves me the way I am. Absolutely. But he doesn't want us to stay there. God loves you as you are because that's what love is. But God didn't create you to stay there. He created us to learn and to grow and to change and be transformed in him. So let that not be an excuse to just stay stagnant, that we're good how we are. No, we got some work to do and God can use us and he will work through us. But he transforms us through this pattern of running to him, giving him our most authentic self even and probably especially letting loose with him on all of those feelings and emotions that we have that are big, not just the positive ones, but all of them, and then allowing him to change us. Because when we surrender, when we lay it all out there, we in turn are transformed from the inside out. And I'll be honest with you. This has been a really difficult message for me to write. This has been hard. Number one, the Psalms are huge and full of so much stuff that could be valuable for us. It's a little intimidating. No, you got one shot to pick something 
that might be helpful to us today. But more than that, I probably shouldn't even tell you this. I probably shouldn't even admit this. But I'm tired. I told Pastor Aaron last week that I feel like I'm running on empty. Like I'm pulling from nothing. It's a good thing I didn't make that bet on the crying. And Pastor said, well, it's a good thing you're preaching on the Psalms because that's really what they are. They're a cry to God when you're full and they're a cry to God when you're empty. And I said, it sounds like you got this down then. You're on. Like, listen, I'm not even afraid of running on empty. You should have seen me squealing into Wesco with eight miles left. I know that stresses some of you out. I had eight miles left in the tank, and Trey was even like, well, do this first before you take us to Grandma's. Nah, this is good. I got this. Eight miles. We can do it. It doesn't scare me. I'm not afraid. I'm not, I'm not a girl afraid to run on empty. It's kind of fun for me. It's like risky, right? Well, Honestly, it's easy for me to joke about because how big of a risk is it? I was born and raised here. I got about a million people I could call if my tank goes empty, and I would have help in about three and a half seconds. So the biggest risk is that I might die without air conditioning for that amount of time. Have you seen what humidity does to this hair? It could be bad. Yes, my girl. She knows. I mean, that would be dangerous for all involved. That could be risky. I mean, or I might be stranded in a, in a sketchy part of town for like a few minutes. Or I might be late to an event, but help would be on the way if I would just call them. But the truth is, I don't like to ask for help. See, I'm a helper, Enneagram 2, which is the helper. I am the helper. I do not like to be helped. I hate to ask for help. I think it's called stubbornness. I know it's real. But I'm independent. I can do things myself. Amen, my brother. Okay? I mean, it's hard for people who like to help to ask for help. So a lot of times I think, you know what? I chalk it up to lots of things. I'm a new mom. The sleep thing will come. I know I'm running on empty because I don't sleep a lot. Oh, now the baby sleeps all night, so now what is it? Oh, I'm struggling because I almost have a teenager. Am I doing the right things? Am I enough as a mom? Am I even making an impact with your kids in these families? Would the community even feel a dent if this church wasn't here? These are the kinds of things that pull me to empty because I don't ask for help. Because I don't give that to God because that's stuff I can handle. But this empty, the spiritual dryness, it is different. It's been a challenging year. There has been so much loss and change and chaos and bickering and division. It's tiring. And some of you are sitting there going, "Uh, yeah, tell me something I don't know. And that's true because it's affected all of us. And then some of you, on top of what we've all been through, You've been dealt even more. It's just one thing after another, and you don't even see that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And you're probably with David in Psalm 13, and you're saying, where are you, God? How could you leave me? Do you even know I'm here? 
How come you're not showing up for me? Do you even care about me? How can you continue to ignore me? And I hear you, and my heart breaks with you. But did you know that when you're running on empty spiritually or relationally, we have the same opportunity available to us if we would only cry out to the God who wants to help us and run to our rescue in the time of our emptiness. We would find that we weren't alone. He's just a phone call away. We could find that we could be filled and made new and restored if we were only willing to run to him when we need it. So here's my invitation to all of us this morning. I invite us into this opportunity for heart restoration. Because God is faithful and he is kind. He is with us and for us and he will never, ever leave us. So we might be screaming. And in our screams, in the cries of our heart, in all the emotions that we feel, we have to come back to what we know. Even if I can't feel your goodness, I know you're good. Even if I don't feel that you love me or you even know that I'm here, I know your love is unfailing. I know I can trust you. And because of that, I will praise you, God. I will cling to you. I will run to you and I will allow you to have my, your way in me and to transform me and to restore my heart. And here's the kicker. Not to what we used to have or what we knew. Restore. I don't even like it that it's that it's that. But how about remake? Make it completely new. Give me a heart like yours, not one that I used to know. Give me your heart. When I decided to start this little journal for you, I was trying to figure out what to put in it, what to write, how to write it. I guess I finally decided just to make it a collection of thoughts. Anything I think about or things we share together, special days, whatever. So here it all is. No matter what the following pages say, always remember the meaning of this book. I love you. What if that's the way we approached God? What if we ran to him with all of our thoughts, all of our feelings, all of our emotions, good and bad, and trusted him with the celebrations and the pain and the regrets and the fears and the sin and let him transform us and renew our hearts. We don't need to be afraid because God can handle it. But we do need to be ready. Because when we're that open and we're that vulnerable and willing to be changed, God will do it. Let's pray. God, we trust that you are the renewer, the remaker, the restorer of our souls and of our hearts. And there might be people in here today that's like, it's been so long since I've talked to you. I don't even know how to approach you. But you know our hearts. And you are in the business of restoration and renewal. God, and we trust 
that you can handle all of it. So on the days when things seem heavy and hard, we'll bring that to you. And when the days feel like it's literally heaven on earth, we bring that to you. We celebrate with you. We grieve with you. Because we know that you can handle all of it. That you don't leave us through the chaos of life. You are the constant. Would you help us to lean in to what we know is true and trust that when our feelings are so big and so loud? Would you be the only voice we hear? Would you make in us clean hearts, O oh God? Would you restore our spirits? Would you make us new? We trust that to you today. And we love you for it.